Brethren, let me ask you please to turn to John chapter 21. As we have been reviewing together the name of the church, Sovereign Grace Bible Church, we've been learning many things. We've been contemplating the beauty and the wonder of God's sovereignty, the wonder of his grace and our salvation, the essential nature of the foundation of the church, which is the word of God. And as we've been going through 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, we've been considering together what it means to be a church. So we've been talking about the fact that we are the household of God. We're the church of the living God, and we are to, the, to be the pillar and support of the truth. Paul, writing to Timothy, is indicating that all these things brought together inform us about how we are to, as he says, how we ought to conduct ourselves within the church. And we talked about how that word ought speaks of the idea of divine obligation. The context of his instructions are important to note. They're significant because Paul had just delineated and outlined what the qualifications are for elders and deacons. And that then flows into the very text that we've been studying. And why is that an important instruction set relative to the idea of being the church and how we're to conduct ourselves? Well, it's important because it is essential that there be qualified deacons and elders to serve within the body of Christ. Let me say one thing here parenthetically. I haven't really had many questions to this effect, but um, as for how long we might be in this series, I don't really know yet. I'm just praying about and considering each and every step that we've been taking in terms of the preaching of the Word of God. I don't have a pre-programmed plan I'm just searching through and am examining the scriptures and am contemplating where we are as a church in order to answer the question, how long do we go? I will say this, that the subject of the church will take longer than the previous sessions, sections, so please bear with me in all this. But this whole idea of the oughtness of the church, the obligation of the church to have a particular conduct is key, as is the question of the qualification of deacons and elders. You know, it's interesting. We're not given the number of elders or deacons that should be in the church, but we are given their qualifications, and this is key. By the way, I believe it's something that I said in a Q&A last year when we were getting to know each other. I made the point then, and I would like to underscore it again. Men are, are not made pastors or elders by simply taking coursework or classes. I didn't become a pastor just by going to seminary. 
Seminaries are not machines where you crank the handle and out comes a pastor who's qualified. The reason why this is important is because I've seen many men fall out of the ministry, many men who were very boastful about how qualified they were for the ministry. I always shudder when I hear a man boasting about how wonderfully qualified he is for the ministry. When I entered into the seminary, um, I was asked if I believed that I was called to the ministry, and I didn't issue some sort of a bold declaration of, well, of course I am. I just said, well, I believe that this is the, the leading of the Lord, and we'll see what happens. With open hands, I, I said, I, listen, the Lord can prove me wrong, and, and I can be very self-deceived in the matter. I've seen many men fall in the ministry who were self-deceived. This is, not a, this is not a joke. This is not a light matter. In order for the church to be the pillar and support of the truth, deacons need to do what deacons are called to do. Elders are to do what elders are called to do. And let me say this. I'm very thankful for our diaconate here and for all the servants in the body of Christ who labor so that those who are commissioned with the ministry of the word can give their time and attention to that. I'm able to do what I'm able to do because of the co-labor of all the servants within the body of Christ here. Remember in Acts chapter 6, deacons were selected in order to minister to the needs of widows. Why? So that those who were tasked with the preaching of the word could devote themselves to the ministry of prayer and the word. And I'm thankful for that opportunity to, to deliver the ministry of the word and to do so basking in prayer all the while. But we all are to co-labor to this end, that we would be the pillar and support of the truth and nothing else. In this series, we've been learning about each other. Every time I preach a message and I talk to individuals in the church, I learn things as I listen. And I've been listening. I've been endeavoring to listen time and again to everyone. I learn from your questions. I learn from your responses. I learn a lot of things as I listen. And by the way, you, you're learning about me. Um, I came here with the confession of sola scriptura, so you're learning about whether or not I, I believe that every time I preach whether or not I'm going to infuse some other external authority into the text of Scripture, or whether I'm going to preach the Word of God without any corruption. And, and by the way, I'm not a perfect preacher, but my goal is, is to preach the Word of God unadulterated. That's my goal. And so in this whole process, we've been learning about one another. This is crucial. Since we're on the subject of the church, and since we, are in the, we have been in the context of 1 Timothy 3, the context of which, again, is the qualification of elders and deacons, which I'll likely say more about later, a little bit. But in view of this contextual 
place that we find ourselves in, I would like for us to consider the text before us in John chapter 21. After our Savior's resurrection from the dead, he appeared to the disciples on several occasions in order to teach them and give them final important instructions before he would finally ascend to the right hand of the Father. And this instruction set that is given to Peter, this exhortational instruction set and Q&A, we could call it, is the focus of our study here this morning. In John chapter 21, beginning in verse 12, Jesus said, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave them the fish and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Brethren, there is a simplicity and beauty to this narrative. And I would submit to you that there are just basically three key lessons that we ought to glean. There are many, many more, but I'm going to offer at least three here this morning. This will not be a detailed exegesis of this text. We could spend weeks on it. But for the sake of our study this morning, I want us, first of all, to consider the lesson of humility that is within this text. There is a lesson regarding the importance of humility within this text. And I get it. The word humility doesn't show up in the text. It is there by inference. And we'll unpack that and consider that here together. Secondly, we see the important duty of feeding Christ's sheep. This is obvious. This is the repeated lesson of of Jesus to Peter. Feed, shepherd, feed. They're my sheep, and this is what you do with them. You feed them, and you shepherd them. It's pretty simple. And the concluding point we'll then consider is not only is the shepherd to feed Christ's sheep, but he is to shepherd them. Humility, the importance of humility in the life of an under-shepherd, the importance of feeding Christ's sheep, the importance of shepherding Christ's sheep. These are the lessons, at least these three, contained in these instructions. Now, why am I beginning with the subject of humility? 
where is this in the text? Well, let's think about what is happening here. Three times Jesus instructs Peter to nurture and to shepherd his sheep. Feed my sheep, shepherd my sheep, feed them. This threefold instruction set parallels Peter's own denial of Jesus. Nearly every commentary set I own recognizes and sees the inferential message here. Remember, it was Peter who had denied Christ three times. Peter denied the Savior three times, and it was the cock that crowed that announced his betrayal. William Hendrickson summarizes this in this way. He says, three times Peter denied his master, and three times he must now own him as his Lord, whom he loves. And the reason why I believe that humility is the inherent lesson in this text is for this reason. As we read the Gospels, we see that Peter esteemed himself very highly. All the disciples did. But time and again, we see Peter esteeming himself and speaking far more highly of himself than he should have. And because of this, he kept overestimating himself. Again, I say, he wasn't alone. Remember the times in the Gospels where the, Jesus would find the disciples arguing amongst one another about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom? I mean, Really? This is what we do by nature. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. So my intention isn't to beat up on Peter and act like as if he's the only problem here. Listen, this is a ubiquitous problem amongst human beings. But we see Peter faltering and failing again and again and again in this way, even betraying the Savior three times. And this serves as a warning to us. Let none of us overestimate ourselves. We need to be on guard against this. This doesn't just apply to me. This applies to all of us. Remember when Jesus, remember when Jesus told Peter that he was going to deny him. The Lord said that he was going to depart from them, and so Peter said, to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, he said, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered and said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, A cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. In Mark's gospel, it's recorded that Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. All these other guys might deny you, but not me. I'm Peter. And after Jesus told Peter that he was going to deny him, In Mark's gospel, I don't know if you remember this, but it says that Peter kept saying 
incessantly, he kept saying, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Peter, hello, you're not listening. Stop overestimating yourself. Think about why the Lord himself is telling you, you will deny me. Brethren, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. That's true for me. It's true for everyone in this room. I know I've said it before, but endure my repeating the matter, please. We live in a self-esteem society, and by the way, we didn't invent this. This has been going on for generations. When Cain killed his brother Abel, he was esteeming himself and his own desires above God. What I call the participation trophy generation has produced a great number of problems in society. Those young children who were raised in the self-esteem generation, they grow up, occupy adult-sized bodies, and they they will demand to be affirmed for whatever they do, no matter how corrupt or sinful even. They will demand praise because that's how they were raised. I think some of the greatest love, tough love I ever received as a baby Christian was to have people tell me, stop thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. (laughs) It hurts. Some of the best counsel I've ever had as a baby Christian, and it continues to be some of the best counsel my soul needs. But when we hear the disciples arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, we have to understand our generation, we're not new to this. This has been around again since the fall of man. And this is why we need, really, brethren, to remember the instruction of the apostle Paul. He says, for through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. By the way, I've got good news for you regarding Peter. And I know you know it. But Peter learned his lessons. <laughs> the lesson of humility he shares with us in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be sober of spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Humble yourselves, he says. This is from the disciple who used to argue about who was the greatest in the kingdom. I think he learned his lesson. Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? 
verse 17. Working backwards, verse 16, again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? The first time he raised this question, he said, do you love me more than these? Oh, this is important. In essence, what he's asking Peter is this, do you love me above all others? Or we could put it this way, am I or am I not your first love? Oh, brethren, this is the central question for every Christian. Again, this isn't just for me as a pastor. This is for all of us. Is Jesus Christ our first love? This was the very indictment that was given to the church at Ephesus. Remember, we looked at this recently in Revelation chapter 2. But they had left their first love, and Jesus rebuked them for that. And so all their deeds, all their works were nothing ultimately in view of the fact that they had departed this central priority of loving Christ above all. I've not received the invitation from my seminary, but if I could go back to my seminary and advise them and counsel them on some sort of an educational primer for every student going through seminary, I might suggest that they go through an exhaustive study of John 21, verses 15 through 17. Before men go and study Hebrew and Greek and church history and all these very important things, I'd say start here. Because after 32 years of ministry, I have seen men falter and fail because they faltered and failed with this first priority. Again, and this is the very thing that I myself could falter and fail in too. I've seen men fail because of man-centeredness. Men get into their pastoral positions, they get comfortable sometimes, and they decide that they shouldn't offend those who hold power in the church. By the way, if somebody holds power in the church, you already have a problem, right? Because as Scott was saying, as we were exhorted at the beginning of the service, whose church is this? If you have power brokers in the church, you've got a problem already. Or those who are wealthy, here's another point. I don't want to know what people make. Sometimes men who come into knowledge of these kinds of things, they start to cater to those who are the big donors. And so they'll compromise here and there in order to cater to the opinions and preferences of men. And for a moment and for a time, they'll think, well, this isn't too bad. I'll, I'll embrace whatever compromise is there. But what they end up doing is trading in a false a true unity for a false unity. They end up trading in true peace for a false peace. You know, early on in my ministry, I remember sitting in my office talking to a man who everybody else knew that he made a lot of money. It's not something I wanted to know, but, but he kind of wore it on himself and how he carried himself. And he tried to influence the leadership of the church, even offering in exchange for his desired changes the purchase of a new sign for the church, which the church was trying to raise money for. 
that meeting did not go as he planned. And needless to say, he wasn't particularly happy with how it ended. Any pastor who can be bought and paid for is no pastor at all. Then there are men who cater to designer, what I call designer doctrines, or whatever is fashionable in the moment. And there are all kinds of fashionable doctrines that come and go. I see men giving themselves over to slavish devotion to evangelical celebrities and repeating whatever fad is in the current stream of evangelicalism in the, in the, in the current day. I remember having one leader in the church pressuring me and pressuring me to um, advocate and promote Ravi Zacharias. I don't know if you know much about him. But I listened to Ravi Zacharias, and, and his subjectivism bothered me to the core. And so when he fell in the ministry, failing morally, years and years and years later, I thought to myself, that's sad, but I'm not surprised. And then there are men who become what I call mini-popes. Men who see their position as a position of power. Men who therefore then lorded over others. In my first ministry, I served under a man who I would characterize in this way. At one point in time, I dared question him, and he came up to me, and he was thumping his finger on my chest and telling me to back off. In one service, he turned around and started yelling at and rebuking the choir in front of everybody. He loved picking fights. He wanted control. And so he had no problem with picking public fights. Then I've seen men enter into ministerial laziness. One preacher I, met, I knew, um, he boasted about the fact that he would move from church to church after so many years. Why? So that he could use his small collection of sermons and just re-preach them over and over again. And he was really happy about the whole thing. He had more time for golf. Honey, I forgive you, but that's one of the men who married us. I didn't learn about this until the last minute. She didn't know this either until he confessed it, and I thought, what? And then there's moral failure. I have books on my shelf written by men teaching others about marriage and family life who ended up in multi-year adulterous affairs. And one of them I attended seminary with. All of these, all of these departures from the way constitute this central departure of loving Christ first. I'm a simple man. I just want to go to the grave loving Christ. That's it.
I don't care what accolades I may or may not receive in this life. I just desire that in every aspect of my my life in ministry that this would be my priority. That in my ministry to my wife and my children, which is my first church, before I minister to you, that's my first church. That I would minister to my family with Christ as being my first love. That in all my studying and reading and writing and preaching and hospitality and counseling, whatever I do in the ministry of the church, that Christ would be my first love. Because again, you take that away and everything vanishes. That's true for me. It's true for all of us. Peter, who thought more highly of himself than he should have thought, needed to go back to the chalkboard and reevaluate his own heart's desires and affections. And this is exactly what Jesus did with Peter. Peter, do you love me? If you really love me, feed my lambs, shepherd and feed my sheep. That's your duty, that's your calling but do it out of love for me. This then brings us to the second consideration that we have in this text. The important duty of feeding Christ's sheep. Thank you, Scott, for pointing it out. Whose sheep are they? They're Christ's. So what food do we give them? What food is the pastor to give to Christ's sheep? You're not mine. I don't get to feed you whatever I want. I have a duty to feed you one meal, and that is the word of God alone. And I do so, I must do so, understanding that you are, we are Christ's possession, and there is no other way for us to be sanctified, nurtured, and to grow than by God's word. We must all feast on the bread of heaven, because there's no other nourishment that brings health and vitality to the body of Christ. You know, when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, people will often say, well, he quoted, he quoted uh, the word of God. Well, of course, he is the word of God incarnate, so anything he would have said would have been the word of God. We understand that, but what did he do? He quoted from the already recorded scriptures that were known by the people. One of which was Deuteronomy 8.3, as he's refuting Satan, he says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What is our food? Our food is the word of God and nothing else. Job says it this way, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And Peter says this, he says, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Pure milk. Pure milk. You know what's fascinating to me is that it doesn't take much to corrupt that which is pure. We were out of town all week. We were staying at a hotel 
that I will never return to again. Um, but uh, there was a hot water heater in the hotel, and all I wanted was some hot water so I could make some tea. And so I brewed some water through it, and I, I looked at the cup, and I'm looking at it, and there all, there's all this stuff at the bottom of the cup, and I'm thinking to myself, it looked clean, you know, but then I ran some more water through it, and then I had more sediment in the bottom, and I just ended up just cleaning the thing out. It, it, it's interesting, isn't it? It doesn't take much effort to just have a little bit of corruption anywhere. This is why Jesus taught his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Why? How much leaven is required to leaven a whole lump of dough? Just a little. Scribes and the Pharisees, who were tasked to preach nothing but the word of God, were repeatedly rebuked by Christ for their false piety, their hypocrisy, and corruption of God's authority. Instead of being the faithful stewards of God's word, they had exalted an entire system of oral traditions which empowered themselves, abused the people, and ultimately nullified the scriptures. The historian Josephus says it well. He says the Pharisees have imposed upon the people many laws taken from the tradition of the fathers which are not written in the law of Moses. And they exalted the traditions, the oral traditions, so much that there, is, that there was a tradition, a rabbinic tradition, that was later recorded in the Mishnah, which is the recorded traditions of the Jews sometime later. But they had so exalted their traditions that Rabbi Eliezer said this. He says, quote, he who interprets scripture in opposition to tradition has no part in the world to come, end quote. What a fearful standard this is. You must go by tradition. Yeah, there's scripture, but tradition. And if you don't go by tradition, you don't have a part in the afterlife. Some of the traditions of the Jews promoted a false understanding of redemption and atonement. In one example, a person who suffered from a plague was to regard their suffering as, quote, an altar of atonement. Similar to this, another rabbinic tradition taught that in addition to physical infirmity, poverty and governmental oppression could achieve a form of personal merit sufficient to keep a soul out of hell. You see the confusion, even in the disciples, as they are walking with Jesus and as he was instructing them. Remember, in John chapter 9, the man who was born blind, the disciples said this. They said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? They were seeing his suffering as some sort of an atonement for some kind of a sin. What were they doing when they asked that question? They were reflecting the popular tradition of the of the Jews. And Jesus answered and said, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. Time and again, we see the Lord Jesus Christ drawing the disciples away from the traditions of the Jews, warning them about the leaven of the Pharisees. 
And honestly, I try to imagine, I've spent hours reading the Mishnah. I don't recommend it unless you really want a good headache. But reading tradition after tradition after tradition after tradition, it is mind-bending all the little laws that were created in order to protect the people from sinning, as that was the motive and, and, and intention. Every Sabbath day, there were 39 extra-biblical standards imposed by the Pharisees that you had to observe or you would be rebuked for your sin. Some of these sins would be, on the Sabbath day, making a knot, untying a knot. That was considered work. Stitching, uh, sewing two stitches, tearing to sew two stitches, or even writing two consecutive letters. Sin. In the Mishnah, it says, he who writes two letters with his right or left hand, whether of one kind or of two kinds, as also if they are written with different ink or are of different languages, is guilty. Oh, but here's a libertine exception. If anyone writes with dark fluid, with fruit juice, or in the dust of the road, or in the sand, or anything in which the writing does not remain, he is free. That's a relief. Hardly. Brethren, I mean, we laugh, but this was real. Imagine living in this world where you just step out of your door and you've got this cloud of tradition. A tradition that said, as the rabbis taught, you honor this tradition or you're not going to heaven. By the way, we always use the word Pharisees. One of the reasons why I want to make sure we're, we know what we're talking about and we take time to talk about the meaning of words in the Hebrew, the word parushim means separate. They were the separate ones. What were they separating themselves from? Well, originally the Pharisees were said to have separated themselves from uncleanness and immorality. They didn't want to be associated with libertines who were violating the law of God. So they came up with traditions to try to protect and uphold the word. But in the creation of these traditions... They ended up nullifying the commandments, as Jesus said, because they held the traditions up to a level that was above their station. And many of these traditions were simply in violation of Scripture itself. Let it be no wonder or surprise to any of us that Jesus, when seeing the multitudes, it says he felt compassion for them Splatna, the idea of just internal grief and sorrow because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Amongst the Jews, yes, there was no shepherd. And here the great shepherd is looking upon the people and seeing that they were dispirited, they were distressed, they were downcast because they had this system of oppression all around them. What's the solution? Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. Peter knew that this was the word of God alone. Jesus wasn't saying, feed them my word plus the rabbinic traditions or just the best of the rabbinic traditions. You feed them 
They're my sheep. You feed them my word. That's it. If you ever dare pick up a copy of the mission, you know what you'll be treated to? Subjectivism. Instead of the objective reality of what is written in Scripture, you are treated to line after line after line after line of rabbinic subjectivism. So instead of reading in the mission and seeing the expression, it is written, which is what we hear from Jesus, you hear and you read the words, Rabbi fill-in-the-blank says. Rabbi fill-in-the-blank says. With all the rabbis that were in the sphere of this oral tradition recorded in the Mishnah, everything depended upon the subjective interpretation of the individual rabbi. So you could go to one rabbi and get one answer. You could go to another rabbi and get another answer. And they all fought amongst themselves about what was sin and what wasn't sin. I say to you, Peter learned the lesson here. He enjoins us to be like newborn babes. (laughs) By the way, what does a baby want? Mama's milk. That's it. You can put all kinds of other things in front of just a newborn baby. There's only one thing they're going to want. Like newborn babes, long for the pure, the what? The pure milk of the word. So here we see Peter learning the important lesson of humility. He may have thought that he had loved the Lord sufficiently, but he did not. He denied Christ three times. He needed to learn to be humble and to reassess his own affections and desires. He needed to understand that it was his duty as a shepherd, as an under-shepherd in Christ's church, that he needed to feed Christ's sheep. And then finally, consider this, he was to shepherd Christ's sheep, shepherd them. You know, I do think that the imagery that we have of a shepherd is sometimes a little off. I've seen some very beautiful pictures, silhouettes of a shepherd and his staff in hand and a sheep or two or three on a hill, and it's very picturesque and beautiful and serene. And and you look at that and you think to yourself, well, this is nice and easy. But the real duty of an actual shepherd, the imagery of a shepherd with actual sheep, really should bring to mind the idea of hard work, danger in light of the wolves that would constantly try to devour the sheep, and even the constant labor of the shepherd to discipline and capture and return and retrieve straying sheep. It's hard work. And as one pastor has said, and sheep bite. I mean, it's, it's not this picturesque, genteel picture that we tend to think. In Spurgeon's Treasury of David, he quotes William Thompson, who says this, With this staff, he rules and guides the flock to the green pastures and defends them from their enemies. With it also, he corrects them when disobedient and brings them back when wandering. So it isn't always just about the quiet, peaceful moment with the sheep, and there are those moments. But oftentimes it is dangerous and it is hard work, and so it is for the pastor. I've already expressed to you some of the conflicts I've been through. I'll tell you, though, 
it is an amazing thing to have professing Christians do things in the name of Christ in the, in the local church that are just reprehensible. When people feel as though their power is being challenged or their reputation or whatever, we do all kinds of crazy things. The, the only thing that preserves us from our madness is making Christ first and seeing to it that Christ's sheep are fed and shepherded in the context of the local church. And like I said, this isn't always a, a pretty thing. You know, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees with some of the harshest rebukes that we have recorded in scriptures. He called them at times thieves, robbers, a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs consisting of containing dead men's bones, and he even called them murderers. And even with his own disciples, he rebuked James and John when they thought it would be a good idea to make a Samaritan village an ash heap simply because they wouldn't cooperate with them. And when Peter opposed Jesus in his description of how he was going to suffer and die on the cross, he rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus was gentle and meek, but he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. The duty of a shepherd is to be a warrior, a defender of the flock, a hard worker, and one who deals with patience and gentleness. It's not one thing. It's everything. It's everything. This is why Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy, and he said this, Preach the word. By the way, that's another way of saying, feed Christ's sheep with his word. Preach the word, he says. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instructions. All of that. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to muthos, myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship. Let me say it again. Endure what? Hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And without the love of Christ, none of that's going to happen the way it should. Without the love of Christ, none of that will happen. Brethren, Christ must be first in my life, in your life, every one of us. For without that priority, everything is indeed lost. Let me just offer a few concluding words and exhortations. As a pastor, the Lord continues to teach me of this priority. I could never sit here and say, well, I've, I've, learned, I've learned to make Christ first. And I'm now done with the lesson. Every day I get up, I'm thinking about lessons like these. And I just want to grow. I want to be more of a lover of Christ tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next. 
with that priority in my heart and bosom to the extent that it grows at all, you know what this does? This makes it so that I will not seek the praise of men. Think about that. If Christ is my first love, the praise of men is not my priority. And let me say as well, you've probably noticed the habit if somebody offers a word of encouragement to me, I, I, I'm not trying to rebuff your kind comments, but I oftentimes say two things, and it's not a formula, but I, I think about this. Well, first of all, I think, glory to God, if I've done anything good, I know where it came from. If I did anything stupid, that's from me, but if there's anything that is commendable, glory to God, I say that first, and then I say, thank you. But it's in that order. It's in that order. Because he's first. And if there's anything good that I ever do, it's from him. So I don't seek the praise of men. I mean, it's nice when people offer kind comments, but that's not my priority. You know what my priority is? And it needs to be the priority of everyone in this room to hear the words someday, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we should be waiting for, longing for each and every day. If Christ is first, that will be the priority of all of us. Secondly, in John chapter 21, it is quite clear that Peter needed a motive check. We all need motive checks. Every time Jesus asked the question, do you love me? He was really having Peter to investigate his soul and to consider, am I really your first love? Brethren, be careful about presuming too much about your own thoughts, motives, and intentions. David had the wisdom to cry out to God and say, acquit me of hidden faults. I'm so vain and foolish I don't even fully know what's in my heart. Expose it by the Spirit. Expose it by your word. I don't want anything coming between me and you. There's a reason why we have these words in Jeremiah 17. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? We didn't even know our own motives, thoughts, and intentions, but God does. Then it says, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Hidden faults, presumptuous sins, we all have to battle with these things. Brethren, let every day be an opportunity for you to consider your own thoughts, motives, and intentions. And by the way, let me also say with this, be careful. Be careful about presuming to know the thoughts, motives, and intentions of other people. Um, that's, that's a dangerous place to go. Jesus never said you will know them by their motives. He said you will know them by their fruit. So we are to evaluate fruit. And the pathway that fruit analyzed takes us leads us to questions about motives, but we should never reverse that order. We're to consider the fruit of those who would minister to us at all. Thirdly, 
John chapter 21, principally as it relates to Peter, I see as an exhortation to pastors again. But this priority of making Christ first, it's for all of us, indeed. It is absolutely for all of us, indeed. And again, as Jesus rebuked the church at Ephesus, think about all the remarkable things that they did. He said that he knew about their toil, their perseverance, that they cannot endure evil men, and that they put to test those who call themselves apostles but are not. They were doing all kinds of wonderful things, but then he rebukes them for having lost their first love. He doesn't give them a pass for doing all these other good things. He's saying, listen, the heart of all this is gone. And that's the thing that really matters. Because Paul says, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I deliver my body to be burned, but if I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Christ is to be first because he's worthy. I'd like for us to conclude with that thought, with this chorus, number 73. Number 73, if you would, if you'd like to turn to the hymnal, or I don't know if we have it on the screen or not, but uh, thou art worthy. Based upon Revelation 4.11, our Lord must always be first because, again, he is indeed worthy. Let's stand together and let's sing this to the Lord. Thou art worthy.
precious Heavenly Father, help us to see your worthiness more and more each day. Help us to see the beauty of Christ more and more each day. Grant us grace to love the Savior more and more each day. We confess that we are frail creatures. And we confess that we are often beset with presumptuous sin. But Lord, help us by the leading of the Spirit to consider our own heart, our own thoughts and motives, so that we would contemplate the importance of making Christ first, such that he, above any other, would be our first love. Thank you for these rich and important lessons. May they be upon our hearts and minds this day and in the days to come and throughout our lives. For we ask, pray, and petition all these things in the fair and precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ.